Amen. Welcome all brave souls. And uh, thank you, Zoe and Sebastian and the rest of you all. Um, Sebastian winged this week, so congratulations. He got F-18s and is heading up to uh, Oceana to be with Zoe. And Zoe, we're going to miss you as well. You Thank you for coming back. And leading us in song this morning. It was great. Um, We're going to be looking at a passage in the book of Matthew and chapter 2 as we uh, continue on in our series through this book. And I've titled this message, This Isn't Working Out As I Expected. And uh, I'm sure there's a lot of people over in the path of Ida where that is very true for them uh, this morning. I'm sure there were wedding plans For this weekend over there, I'm sure there were some people that probably just got into houses that they had built or bought, and then all of a sudden, uh, life is going in a way that they didn't really anticipate. Um, And expectations, I think, are funny things. They can be things that that enable us to move forward and go ahead when when life is difficult, but when our expectations aren't met, they can be things that kind of throw us to the ground and really, really discourage us. And, and we all have them, I think. Whether they're conscious or kind of under the surface, they are there. We have expectations of other people in our lives. If we're married, we have expectations of our spouse. We have expectations of our friends. We have expectations of what our job will be like, of how especially God is going to work in our lives in the here and the now. And we're going to look at a section of scripture that is a part of the Christmas story that's not often presented in Christmas plays. It's, you know, we end with kind of the visit of the Magi and then we just move on to a section later in Jesus' life. But this is very much a part of the reality of Joseph and Mary in their life. And I want you to take a second, if you can, imagine being in their shoes, okay? And, and Matthew's primarily taken from Joseph's perspective. So imagine you're engaged to be married to someone, and then all of a sudden that person is pregnant. And your natural response is, okay, this fiancé of mine has been messing around with somebody else, and you're planning to end the engagement and call things off, and then an angel appears to you in a dream and says, you know, by the way, this child in your fiancé is from the Holy Spirit, and I want you to call him Jesus. Yahweh saves because he's going to save his people from their sins. And then Matthew says, this is Emmanuel, God with us. So imagine that. It's like, okay, this is pretty amazing, okay? So what's going to happen next? And, and they're in Bethlehem, and, and they settle down a little bit, and life is going on. And then all of a sudden, this whole caravan of dignitaries from the Far East, probably from Babylon, shows up on your doorstep, you know, and they have these amazing gifts, you know, probably more resources than you've ever seen. They open up gold, frankincense, and myrrh, things that are really, really valuable, and you're saying wow, this is going pretty well, you know. We're going to be parents of the Messiah, the King of Israel. Foreign dignitaries are coming like they did to Solomon, like the Queen of Sheba bringing spices and gold and all this great stuff. Life is going pretty well. And I can imagine Joseph laying his head down on the pillow at night and Mary's next to him and the baby Jesus is in the room and he's just thinking like, life is just really good. Good. 
He's anticipating sweet dreams, and then about halfway through the night, the same angel probably that told him, hey, this pregnancy in your fiance, that's from God, it's okay. Now this angel shows up and says, hey, you gotta get out of town, and you gotta get out of town fast, because Herod wants to kill this child. And bam, the reality of expectations not being met probably hit this couple really, really hard. So I want to read this passage and just look at it briefly. We'll try to get us out of here before any massive bands of storms come through again. But starting in verse 13 of Matthew chapter 2. Now when they had departed, that's the Magi and their caravan, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child, to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I have called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in the city called Nazareth, that, was spoken, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. This is a reading of God's word. So here you have the situation set up. They're in Bethlehem. They are probably doing pretty well. They're excited about raising this child. And all of a sudden, in the middle of the night, an angel appears to Joseph and says, rise, get up right now, and you head down to Egypt. And that was probably a 200-plus mile journey. We don't know if they had a donkey, but it's in the middle of the night, and Joseph immediately obeys, right? He gets his wife and Jesus up and says, we're out of here. We don't know if they started walking or if they had a donkey, but this is not, you know, something that a young family with Jesus was probably six months to 24 months old at this point in time. This is not something that you're excited about probably doing in the middle of the night. And it's at night, right? And this is before LED lights. It's before you get in a car and we're just going to head down the road. No, you're beginning this journey and it goes through the desert and some godforsaken places and it's at night. Night is not a time that you want to travel. There's predators out there, probably both human and animal. And it's like, okay, this is not what I thought life was going to be like. God, aren't you big enough to deal with Herod? What in the world? Why are we having to flee and get out of here because this mad, power-hungry ruler has it in for our son? And I can just imagine what's going through Joseph's mind. God, this is not what I expected when you called me 
to be the stepdad of your son. And then imagine you're on your way down to Egypt and you're traveling a little bit more slowly than a couple of guys that are just heading down there and they pass you and you get in small talk and say, where are you from? It's like, oh, we're from Bethlehem. And then all of a sudden he says, wow, Bethlehem, can you believe what happened there? And they're like, what happened there? Well, Herod, you know, he, he had all these children killed in Bethlehem. It was terrible. And imagine how you feel as a parent in that situation. Bethlehem was probably a city of about 1,000 to 2,000 at this point in time. There's probably 20 to 40 kids in that age range. And in towns that are that small, you probably know everybody. And you begin to think, oh, man, we were just at Levi's baby shower and Joshua, and, and you realize that all these little kids that, that you knew that were joys to their parents coming into this world now are all of a sudden dead. And imagine that weight on your shoulders when you know, okay, they were gunning for my child. My child made it, but all these other children didn't make it. You know, you know about survivor guilt, those that make it through, and it's just really difficult to deal with that. So, so that's the reality of what's on their shoulders as well. God, why did you let this happen? How could you let this happen? This isn't what I expected. And then you're down in Egypt for a while, and they're probably in Alexandria. Alexandria had a huge Jewish population. Up to a third of the city was Jewish. Uh, Philo says there were about a million Jews there, so they probably went and settled there. And, you know, they're probably living off of the treasure that the Magi brought, you know, so God had provided for them in that way, and they're down there. And when they left, you know, they didn't know how long they were going to stay. Just like, oh, go stay there till I tell you to leave. And it's like, okay. <laughs> and they're down there, and then finally a piece of good news, right? An angel comes to, to Joseph again and says, head back to Judea because Herod is dead. It's like, oh, great. We get to go back home, the place where we're from, back to Bethlehem likely. This is going to work out well. And then you get back there. And then you realize, wow, yeah, Herod's gone, but one of his sons, Archelaus, is now in charge of Bethlehem and Jerusalem and this area. Herod had three sons that inherited power in this area. One was Herod Philip, which was up kind of north and east of the Sea of Galilee, then there was Herod Antipas, which is the Herod that you encounter later in the Gospel of Matthew, but he, his area was more in Galilee. And then Archelaus was the one that was in Jerusalem, and his title was a little bit over his brothers, and they called him an ethnarch. And Caesar had said, basically, you do this job well, and we're going to make you king. But unfortunately, Archelaus inherited his dad's propensity for violence and cruelty. And one of the first things that happened once he took power, um, Herod the senior died in 4 BC, was there was a Passover in Jerusalem. There was a small uprising, and instead of quelling that with some type of political acumen, he sent in the troops and he killed 3,000 Jews. And his rule was so brutal that Caesar had him taken out of there because he realized if this guy continues to reign, there's going to be an uprising in Judea. And they sent him to Gaul 
which is France. It's like, we're going to get this guy as far away from this place as possible. But Joseph and Mary are going back thinking, okay, we're going to get back into Bethlehem. Life is going to be good. And they hear, wow, this guy that just took out 3,000 Jews is now ruling and reigning in this place. Probably not a safe place for us to raise the Messiah. So they head up to Nazareth. And you got to kind of recognize they're from this town right and this was even a smaller town it's out in literally the sticks kind of between the mediterranean sea and the sea of of galilee and in the mountains there city of probably archaeologists estimate about 480 people and this is hometown and this is going back to place where everybody knew their history as a couple everybody knew "Mm, mary was "Mm," before the wedding happened and Either Joseph is a super wimp and he just got taken advantage of or he was fooling around with his spouse before marriage. Both of those were a big deal in that day. And so this is a town you're going back to where there's going to be all the looks from people. Oh, they're back. It's that couple. We, we know what those kind of people are like. And we know Nazareth was not a place that was an exciting place to be from. Remember the Gospel of John. When Philip calls Nathaniel, he says, oh, we found the Messiah, this is great. It's Jesus of Nazareth. And he's like, man, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nothing good comes out of that place. It's Podunk Stickland, you know, it's the boondocks at some hill village in West Virginia or Kentucky, you know, where they haven't had news of the modern world in, in, you know, years maybe. And that's where the Messiah is coming from. No, 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 the Messiah comes from Bethlehem, right? That's the city of David. And so, imagine what you're thinking at this point in time in your life. Okay, we are to bear the Messiah. And I'm thinking, if I'm Joseph, life should be pretty smooth (laughs) for the parents of the Messiah. And then all of a sudden, thing after thing after thing happens. And I'm sure their expectations were just crushed of what they were anticipating life to be like as the ones that were rearing the future Messiah and King of Israel. God, this is not at all what we expected. You ever been there? You had hopes for certain things and then all of a sudden everything seems to go sideways. It's been a tough financial period in your life and then the refrigerator goes out and then about two weeks later the AC goes out as well and you're like, God, really? Do you have to pile on like this? Or you go to the doctor and you've been feeling really good and then he says, well, I'd just like to take a little extra scan here and take a look at it and then it's like, I've got some really rough news for you. You may want to sit down for this. Or you had expectations of what was going to happen in the lives of your kid or in your marriage and, and those things just don't come out like you thought they were supposed to come out if you were seeking to follow God. God, what are you doing? Why aren't you making life a little bit easier for me? Why does this have to be the way it is? If you've been there, how did you handle those times when God seemingly did not meet your expectations 
of what life was supposed to be like if you're following him, right? And I think especially in our country, we have expectations about what God should do in our lives that are more cultural sometimes than they are biblical. That we think life should go really well if we're following Jesus and then every once in a while there'll be some rough patch that we hit but you know, we'll get through that really quickly and, and then we'll move on to the, to the good stuff and then sometimes that doesn't happen and you're diagnosed with some chronic condition that you realize you'll probably be dealing with for the rest of your life. You're like, God, this is not what I expected as your child. How do we handle those times? Well, to me, one of the ways we we handle it is we recognize that, you know what? We are not home yet. We are in a spiritual battle that is going on right now. And we often forget that. Even though it's laid out in Ephesians 6, and the reality is that there are forces in this world that are opposed to us as believers. That's just the reality. They were opposed to Jesus. If you read Revelation 12, it's this picture of a woman giving birth in heaven, and right as she's going to give birth, there's a dragon right there ready to devour the child. And you look at Jesus, and you see all this kind of demonic activity in his ministry and around him, The spiritual world knew that this was the Messiah to come and we're going to try and take this child out in any way that we can. And this goes all the way back to the beginning, right? He's going to crush your head, but you're going to strike his heel. There's going to be two deadly wounds that happen between the seed and this enemy of the seed, the adversary, the slanderer, the devil, And again, I think in our Western world, we don't like to think of that. And Paul says, you know, we're not wrestling against flesh and blood. We're wrestling against principalities and powers and rulers in high places. And that sounds strange and it sounds, man, that's just foolish. That's nonsense stuff. But that's the reality of the world that we live in. It's real. And here I think you see the powers of evil trying to eliminate this child. And I've been reading through David's life and Samuel And, you know, just Saul at first is thrilled with David, you know, and then the women start singing the song, you know, Saul's killed his thousands, David's killed his ten thousands, Saul doesn't really like that, you know, David's playing the harp, and then there's an evil spirit that comes and takes over Saul, he's got a spear, and wham, bye, I gotta get out of here, you know, I guess he didn't like that song very much. And then Jonathan gets David to be convinced and talks to his dad and says, okay, yeah, he's okay with you being there. And then it happens again, and then David says, like, I'm out of here. And then I was just reading this morning, and David goes to this town of Nob, and he and his men are hungry, and so there's a priest there, Ahimelech, that feeds him some bread, and he takes Goliath's sword, and then he heads out of the town, and Saul hears about this, and he calls Ahimelech, to his headquarters and said, what in the world are you doing? You're aiding my enemy that wants to take me off the throne. And Ahimelech's like, he's not trying to take you off the throne. He's done all this great stuff for you. And he says, basically, shut up. And then he tells his henchmen, kill him, kill all his family. And then they kill him and 84 other priests. And they go to the town and they kill all their families and all their children and all their livestock. He's like, this dude seriously has some issues. Why? Because the seed, the promised child, was going to come through David. And so there's this attack against God's people, especially towards the Messiah that has been there. 
And so as Mary and Joseph walk into this, they need to realize, man, this is a spiritual battle of epic proportions. And sometimes it's going to be really, really hard. The king has come, yes, but his kingdom is not yet fully here. We live in this tension between, yeah, the kingdom's arrived in Jesus, but it's not fully experienced by us yet. So there's going to be times of tears and there will be injustice and there will be heartache and God is not insulating his people from that. Do you know what? In the path of Ida this morning, there are going to be Christians that are impacted severely by this storm. God doesn't say, well, I'm just going to move that storm around, so no, no. We live on a broken planet and we need to recognize that that's going to be part of this life and there are forces at work behind the scenes. And yes, Herod is a crazed madman that wants to hang on to power in any way he can, but you need to recognize there's a force even behind Herod. Like there was a force behind Saul and his mad attempts to kill David. So, recognize that we're in a war right now. And I think our expectations are different when we're in wartime than when we're in peacetime, right? My dad was a World War II guy, and in the whole country, there were sacrifices that the country made. There were things that people couldn't get because those resources were devoted to winning the war at that point in time. And I think as well, we need to have expectations as we go through this world that this is a spiritual battle we're in. And to recognize we're not home yet. It's not heaven on earth yet. We still pray that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That means it's not fully done on earth yet. We long for that time. And the second thing that helps, I think, with expectations is just to align our expectations with Scripture. As you read through this passage, you'll hear this over and over again. This happened to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. In verse 15, out of Egypt I called my son. Verse 17, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah. And then later on, and when he went and lived the city called Nazareth, that, was, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. So in all of this, what Matthew's trying to do is saying this is consistent with the story of Scripture. This isn't an outlier. This is part of what it means to be part of the family of God. And as you look at these quotations, sometimes you'll, you'll read the Old Testament and you'll go like, what in the world is he talking about here? Because oftentimes when we think of prophecy being fulfilled, it's a specific prophecy with a very specific fulfillment that's to come in the future. But if you look at Hosea 11.1, 1, out of Egypt I called my son, it's talking about the Israelites going out of Egypt. It's not even a prophecy. It's not saying, out of Egypt I will call my son. It's saying, out of Egypt I called my son. I took my people through Moses out of Egypt. So how in the world does that relate to Jesus coming out of Egypt? And you recognize often how Matthew and a lot of the New Testament writers will use Old Testament pictures and images and types as a foreshadowing of what was to come in Jesus. This kind of fills out this picture. Out of Egypt I called my son. Like I called my people out of Egypt, I'm going to call my son out of Egypt as well. He fulfills this pattern that you see in the Old Testament. 
even down to the male children being killed. When did that happen before? When there was a crazy lunatic leader called Pharaoh that said, I want all you Hebrew midwives to kill the Israeli boys when they're born, and none of them did that. So then he gave an order to everybody in the land, if you see a young Hebrew boy, you throw him in the Nile River. Yet God rescued who? Moses. And, and so to me, there's all this type, all, all these pictures of what God's going to do through this coming one, bringing him out of Egypt to rescue his people. And it's interesting when the transfiguration happens, Moses and Elijah speak with Jesus about his, and the words used there is exodus. His exodus, his bringing his people into the promised land. And so when you look at these fulfillments, to me, you've got to take a little bit bigger picture of some themes throughout scripture and how Jesus kind of recapitulates and is following in this pattern that God has brought about in the lives of his people over the years. And then the passage in Jeremiah about the weeping women, that was basically Rachel there as pictured kind of as the matriarch of the Israeli people. She's weeping over the Israelites that have been exiled to Babylon. And Ramah is a city that's about mm, six miles north of Jerusalem. Bethlehem was about six miles south of Jerusalem. And if you remember the story of Rachel, she died in childbirth and her burial place was very close to here. So there's all this tie-in to, to sorrow and suffering and weeping but if you read Jeremiah 31, it's a beautiful picture. That's the only negative verse in that whole chapter. It's about God restoring his people even after this hurt and difficulty. And I think what Matthew is saying, yes, there is going to be pain, there's going to be difficulty, but that's not the end of the story. God's not going to shelter his people from those kind of things. I've done funerals for kids under one year old and that's the reality of life sometimes. And that's hard and it's brutal, but I think what Matthew is saying here is that God, even in the midst of that, he's still involved and ultimately his plans and purposes will be fulfilled. And then this last one, they were expecting probably to go to Bethlehem and then they get sent to the sticks. And Matthew says... This is what was spoken by the prophets and he used prophets plural there, not singular. And before he was always saying this is a specific prophet that said this, but here this is what's spoken by the prophets plural that it might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. And as good Bible students, what do you do? You look in your concordance and says, okay, where am I going to find this? He shall be called a Nazarene. And you type that into your search engine and you're like, whoa, zero hits. And then maybe I spelled it wrong and still zero hits. And you're like, this is not anywhere in the Old Testament. You, you can't find this, you shall be called a Nazarene anywhere. So what in the world is Matthew doing here? Is he just making stuff up out of the blue? I think Matthew is being really brilliant here and doing something that people who knew the scriptures well would get. In Isaiah 11.1, 1, this is what it says. You don't have to turn there. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. A branch from its roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what he see, his eyes see or decide disputes by what he hears. 
But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. So obviously this is a picture of the coming ruler, right? And he's called a branch. And then in Isaiah 53, you don't have to turn there either, I'll go there. This is the famous passage of the suffering servant. And this is Isaiah 53, 2. For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. So there's this understanding in the Old Testament that though kind of Jesse's tree had been cut down and Jesse was the father of David, there's going to come a time in the future where a root will produce a branch that will come out and that branch will be the one that comes to this earth and will rule and reign, but it also will be that branch will be one that is despised. And you know what the word for branch is in Hebrew? Natser. The town of Natser, Eth. So I think what Matthew is doing is a word play here. Jesus is the branch from branch town. And this fulfills what the prophets were saying. And not only does Isaiah speak about this, but Zechariah picks up this image of the branch as well. And so I think what Matthew is saying, this is a fulfillment of this picture of what the Messiah is going to be like. He's going to be a branch from branch town. He's going to be the coming king. It fulfills this big theme of scripture. But I think it's more than just that. Because the Jews at that time had two well, two pictures, basically. You had that suffering servant of Isaiah 53, but also you had the coming Messiah and King. And very few people put those two together. But look what Matthew does. He says he's going to be called a Nazarene. And as you realize, and we've talked about before, Nazareth is a hick town. Nothing important came from Nazareth. He's going to be despised. In Acts 24, in the trial before Felix, one of the lawyers basically trying to diminish Paul says yeah he's from the cult of the Nazarenes you know those crazy whacked out people from the sticks that live out in the boondocks that are uneducated that don't have a grasp of reality yeah that's where he's from and so I think what Matthew's doing here as well as saying he's connected with the branch is that you know what he's got nothing in him that the world is going to be attracted to him in fact his name is going to kind of be used with scorn. Jesus of Podunk Town. Jesus of the Sticks. Jesus from a place where nothing really good ever comes out of that place. And again, I think this is God working in his people's lives to let us know, you know, yes, there's some great glory with being a follower of Jesus Christ. We are children of the king, but you know what? There's also going to be some scorn that comes along with that. We're going to be looked at as foolish and scorned, and it's like, you guys don't have half a brain. If anybody thought anything, they wouldn't think this kind of stuff, and Jesus is willing to identify with that. It also lets me know that God doesn't always put everything on the bottom shelf. Sometimes he puts things up a little bit higher. What do I mean by that? Okay, you're a Jew, and like Nathaniel, he, you hear, oh, the Messiah's come. He's Jesus of Nazareth. And immediately in your head, you're like, 
The Messiah doesn't come from Nazareth. And without digging any deeper, you can just totally reject that, right? I don't buy into this, who this Jesus is. He's not from the right place. But you hear his teaching, and it's like, how in the world do I, there's something that draws me here. And then you hear a little bit more of the story, and yes, he's from Nazareth, but actually he was born in Bethlehem, David's city, the city where Messiah's come from. So we put that together, but on initial hearing, it's like, no, I want nothing to do with this because this doesn't fit my understanding right away. And I think sometimes in our lives, too, we have to dig a little bit deeper. We have to seek after God. Everything is not laid out on the bottom shelf. Am I willing to push into Jesus? Am I willing to seek his kingdom? It's not a passive thing. I need to keep pushing into things. And sometimes I'm not going to understand it all at first. Why in the world is this going on? And sometimes we'll get answers for that, and sometimes we won't. But to me, it's not always clear right at the start that God, I think, values our searching and seeking and longing to know him and pushing into those things that we can't quite figure out yet. Jesus of Nazareth, Nathaniel. Anything good ever come from that? Well, he finds out, right? <laughs> so be willing to dig. And then as we deal with kind of difficult, broken expectations, I think one of the things that we're called to do is live in obedience to what we already know is true. And you see this in Joseph in this context. Joseph is kind of the to me, the unsung hero of all these nativity stories. Mary, you know, she's front and center, and I know she has a child, and I know it's a whole lot harder to have a child than to be, you know, all that. I know that, but Joseph's usually like, he's, you know, the minor player off to the side in the nativity scene. You know, it's kind of hanging out where the focus is on Mary. But in this, every time the angel appears to him and says, do this, what does he do? He immediately does it. It's like, take your family, get out of here, flee to Egypt. And it's like... Okay, I'll get to that. You know, I've got, you know, like I said, I've got some hoops that I need to play tomorrow morning, and then, but we'll get going. No, right away, he's like, okay, we're out of here. We're going. And imagine waking up your wife in the middle of the night and said, hey, an angel just appeared to me, and we got to get out of here. And she's like, okay, do I have time to pack? It's like, not really, just throw a bunch of stuff you can, and we're moving right now. But he says, no, we're going to go. And notice the angel doesn't say, well, how long are we going to be down in Egypt? I don't know anybody down there. This is a strange place. How, how are we going to manage down there? And, and I think said before, I think God provided through the gifts of the Magi for this time, and we're not sure how long they were down there. But a lot of this was uncertain, and he was just like, okay, I'm following the next thing that the Lord has told me to do, even though I don't have all the answers. And to me, this is just an indication that we trust God with what he's revealed to us and he doesn't always give us all the explanations of how this is going to work out. Well, we're supposed to be in Bethlehem. That's where the Messiah comes from. And he's, go to Nazareth. I don't want to go to Nazareth. Not a lot of people I like in Nazareth. Everybody gives us dirty looks in, in Nazareth. It's Podunk Stickville. I don't want to go to Branchtown. I want to stay here. And he's like, go there. I'll work it out. It's like, how are you going to work it out? You just leave those details to me. I will work it out. And we often want to have a roadmap of our entire life, how God's going to work out this stuff. And what I always say is God hasn't given us a map. He's given us a guide. 
He says, Jesus will walk with you in the midst of the brokenness of the world and there will be tears, there'll be heartache, there'll be left turns when you think you should go right and all that stuff is gonna happen but you know what? Jesus is gonna be right there with you. Emmanuel, God with you and he'll work out the details. And God provided for them through all these circumstances. Who knows how much resources they had but they made it through their time in Egypt and they made it back to Nazareth and Joseph was a carpenter. Jesus probably learned that trade. And, and just think, okay, Jesus also had to deal with the death of his dad, his earthly dad. Remember when Jesus is hanging on the cross and John, and he looks at John and he says, you take care of mom. Well, if Joseph was still around, he wouldn't have had to say that. So Jesus has dealt with sorrow and grief in his life, he's seen people close to him die. He's experienced this difficulty and he says, I keep going on and I keep following my father because ultimately this will end well. And that's what I want to close with. Still live with an expectation and a hopeful expectation of ultimate joy, right? There's one comment, I'm kind of cynical, I love this. You know, since I gave up hope, I feel a lot better. You know, it's like... And my dad, when I was getting into ministry, said, you know, one thing, I'll just, just don't have any expectations on people and then it'll go a whole lot better. When they come through, it'll be like, yeah, this is great. If they don't come through, it'll just be like, yeah, that's people. It's just how it is, you know? And I don't want to quite be that cynical, but the reality is, you know, we work in this world and it's broken and things don't happen like we had hoped they'd happen often. But my ultimate joy is not tied up in this world, it's tied up in my relationship with Jesus. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul's talking to believers there, and he says, though we do not lose heart, and he's talking about all the things he's gone through, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction, heading down to Egypt, heading back to a town where you think you'd go, people dying around you. This light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. That God has blessed us so richly in my life. We have so much... Life has been pretty darn good most of the time. Yet, that is not where my hope is based because I know all that can change in an instant. In one visit to a doctor, in one bad turn on a road, it all can be over. Yet, if my hope is in something more than what's here, that hope will endure. That hope is in Jesus Christ, in the things that are eternal, not in the things that are transient. And I think when we have that attitude, when we go through life and not all our eggs are in this basket of what's gonna happen in this life, but it's like, Lord, you are coming and I know this world is broken and I pray that I don't have to go through a whole lot of that brokenness, but I know that that can come as a believer and I know we're not sheltered from all that stuff. If it happened to your son and his family, it's probably gonna happen to me to a certain degree. And didn't Paul say, all who wanna live godly lives will be persecuted. There will be some scorn. There will be some time where they will say, Brett, you're an idiot for following this Nazarene bumpkin. But I know that Nazarene and I know that Nazarene is not really from Nazareth, 
but he's from Bethlehem. And I know that Nazarene is Yahweh saves and he will save his people from their sins. And he saved me and my prayer is that he saved you as well. But that doesn't mean that life will be easy from that point on. It means we walk in obedience to what we know and keep going a step at a time, trusting that God will provide through all of these circumstances. And we often want to know how he's going to do it, but I don't think often on the front end God gives us that. He just says, walk in obedience one step at a time with me. Yeah, I know. We're going back on that stinking road again. I know it's 200 miles of dust. I know it's not a wonderful journey, but we're going back to Bethlehem. Oh, not going to Bethlehem. We're going to Nazareth. So there's another 80 miles on this stinking donkey and we're going back to a place where I don't want to go because that's not where I want to live. And God says, I'll take care of that. Trust me. Walk with me. So where's your hope this morning? What are you pinning your expectations on? To me, this story lets us know that those expectations need to be pinned solidly on Jesus Christ. He walked through this world. He experienced all the difficulty of this life. He was a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. He knew it. But he also knew what was to come. And for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And what was that joy? His relationship with you and with me. And he wants us in that relationship and he walks with us through this broken world. And he's walking with the believers right now that are in the path of Ida right now as well. And it doesn't mean life will be easy. Sometimes life is really, really hard. And as a pastor, I don't do you any favors to sit up here and quote one verse from one taken out of context scripture and said, life will always be good. It's your best life now and it will always be awesome. Because if I tell you that as soon as the bottom drops out, you're going to bail. And that's the problem with expectations that aren't built on the world, on the word, but on the world, because when they hit and they fall apart, then we tend to like, well, I didn't expect this from God. Well, did God promise that to you? Probably not, but there's some false teaching out there that promised you that. And that can derail people's faith. You look at the parable of the sower, right? You know? Some of the seed, when the difficulties come, they're just like, Phew. Not into this Jesus. I'm into this Jesus as long as he's given me stuff. As long as life is going well. And the song that we sang this morning at the end, I'm not here, Jesus, because I want something from you. I'm here for you. And that's so hard for us because our eyes so quickly go to all those things that we want. And again, I'm not saying don't have any hope for that, but make sure that that's not your ultimate hope. Like I said, God's been really, really good to us. There's so many things that I've hoped for that have happened, but there's a lot of things that haven't as well. But God has been faithful through every step of the way. He's always provided what was needed. And he will do that for you as well as you walk in obedience, even when you don't have it all figured out. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are a God that knows what it's like to walk in the midst of the brokenness of this world. And I thank you also that as believers, this world is not our only hope. That you are our hope. That one day, Lord, you will return and you will set all wrongs right. You will return us to a state where in your presence, Lord, there is fullness of joy and at your right hand pleasures forevermore.
Lord, that's coming, but it's not here yet. So, Lord, strengthen us for the journey. Help us to be people who solidly put our hopes and expectations in you. No matter how many left turns come in our lives, that we would continue to walk in obedience to you. Thanks for your love. Thanks for your grace. We pray again that those that are going to be impacted by this storm would experience your presence and your power even now and protection. Lord, we thank you that you're a good, good father, that ultimately you will bring us home, that you're going to prepare a place for us, and that is beyond our ability even to imagine. So, Lord, we cling on to that, and we ask that you would give us the strength to walk with you in the midst of this world as people, people of hope, not in what this world is going to provide, but in you and our relationship with you. And it's in Jesus' powerful and precious name that I pray. Amen.